You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm joined today by Louis Liebenberg, who's been called everything from a scalum, a schemer, to perhaps even a savior. He's been accused of smuggling. He's been accused of running a Ponzi scheme. So I think it's time that we ask Louis Liebenberg the hard questions. But before we get there, Louis, welcome to the show. And give us a brief background as to who you are and how you came to be in the diamond trade. Hi, Chad and the listeners. Can you hear me properly? You're perfectly clear. Thank you very much. I was born 23rd of May 1964 as the son of a civil engineer in Bloemfontein. So my parents uh, both come from Bloemfontein. My father was in Central, very much Afrikaans, and my mother in uh, Urania Macy School, if I'm correct, or or Eunice or something, one of those. I'm not so sure. But, yes, I come from Bloemfontein, uh, one of five brothers, the second one. Uh, I studied law at Potchefstroom. My great-grandfather, with the same name, has been the founder member, Louis Pietras, of the Burgersdorp Theological School that later became Potchefstroom University. So I come from a family of lawyers, uh, advocates, teachers, and uh, and then preachers. That's basically my background. So, Louis, how did you start off in, in business? You know, we, we're going to lead up to the questions that 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 is the reason why we had the show today and that relates to the controversy about diamond dealing in South Africa and your role in all of that. But how does one land up in such a business? Because what we know as members of the public is that it's a industry that's controlled primarily by a very well known organization. It's a very expensive industry, but it's also a very murky industry. Yes, absolutely. Um, my interest uh, was basically kindled because I, I grew up, or not grew up, I must uh, always qualify that I ended up in Port Nolith when I was 10 years old, uh, back in 1974. And my father became a pastor there. He became a pastor in, um, at the age of 36. Um, he was a civil engineer, worked at Roberts Construction and building bridges and uh, all sorts. And then ended up in the museum in Port Nolith, which was our house. Now, the museum in Port Nolith, those of you who, won't, who wouldn't know the town, very small town, but it's about, uh, I would say, about 50 meters from the jetty in Port Nolith, where the beers brought in uh, all their ships uh, still today. I actually supplied them at one stage with uh, their diesel uh, and so on. And they come to that, and I was standing there as a 10-year-old boy, and I was thinking all these tons of diamonds are taken away from the jetty uh, in South Africa and then taken to Kimberley and then off to England or Japan, Hong Kong, one of those uh, exported at a fraction of its cost. And uh, that obviously irritated me because Namaquiland people are very poor. That I remember distinctly because we were poor as well. And at the age of 10, I also saw the first boats coming in. Uh, I'm talking about the small uh, industry, the artisanal miners that came and worked uh, uh, offshore with small boats that I later wanted to purchase. So I had a dream of becoming part of this whole thing, but I never (laughs) understood the real controversy when you get involved with the mineral wealth of South Africa that is controlled by an elite group. And if your name is not right, you're in trouble. But now, Louis, controversy seems to follow you everywhere. There was a massive um, 
publication regarding the Sicilian mafia. Now, this is something people see in the movies. We don't, we don't ever get to speak to somebody who's been associated with the mob. How, how did that come about and what did that have to do with your trade in diamonds? Well, very little as a matter of fact. Maybe I can just briefly say how I got involved. I was a, a legal advisor at Southern Life and then a, a middle manager for 12 years. I, I led a very ordinary life, but I always had this inkling to start business and I started farming with chickens when I was 14. When I was in Standard 8, I brought my first uh, a car cash. I went overseas. I traveled Israel, Greece, Italy, France, Switzerland, England, and, and uh, Germany for six weeks as a as a 15-year-old child wanting to see the world. So I always had uh, this wish that one day I can have uh, a bit of money because <laughs> as a pastor child, we didn't really have that. And um, so I worked 12 years at Southern Life, uh, the first Rand group, that then in the year 2000, uh, we sold out to Momentum, as you might know, and uh, the market structure changed very much. So Southern Life was a very unique concept, and I wasn't really happy to go and work with a Buddha at Momentum. So um, I, I left that, and uh, at the very same time, my wife left me as well. So I ended up um, on the streets uh, in Benoni, and I had to sing in bars and so on to survive. Uh, although I, I had 22 houses at the time, I wasn't interested in the concept of uh, establishment. Uh, I wanted a new life. Uh, maybe at the age of 36, I was also experiencing a bit of a midlife crisis concerning where the world is going. I studied law. I did well in that, but I never practiced as an attorney or an advocate as the plan was. Because very early on, I got disillusioned with this whole concept of law, and I saw in the courts that there was no law at, at all, and I'm not, uh, it doesn't sit well with me when you say one thing and do another. So that's basically how I then started my search. And I went back to uh, where my father was happy, and I was looking as an outie in the streets of Benoni for nine months. I was looking at uh, restarting my life. And I went to the shores of Port Nolith back. I uh, started working on some of the smaller diamond boats there. And I saw that they had capital problems. They were mostly on drugs. They were mostly using dacha from morning to night, um, make a bit of a, a jackpot, hit it, and then uh, go down to Cape Town and spend it all on wine, women, and song. And I thought I could... Uh, do something about this. And um, then I started selling the concept that there's diamonds in the sea, which people didn't know in South Africa. It's, it's strange now, but at the time, n nobody knew about this diamonds. De Beers and all the big boys keep all these things a secret. And therefore, it irritated me immensely that the people in Amakwaland, the people that was there even before uh, all the settlers came in, had nothing and they were poor. Even today, 95% unemployment in some of those towns. So when we come back from the ad break, I want to talk to you a little bit more about Diamonds in the Sea and what you did to try to bring this to the attention of the public, but not just bring it to the attention of the public, getting the public to invest, benefit, and to see how the indigenous people would have been able to benefit. And that was a project known as Wealth for You. We'll be back straight after this. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. 
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to the Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM, broadcasting worldwide on highfm.com. We're chatting to Louis Liebenberg and we're leading up to find out exactly what's happening today in respect of the people of Namakwaland, the people of the Richtersfeld, diamonds in South Africa as a whole. But we're busy chatting about his trip as into how he got to where he is today. And before we went to break, he was chatting to us about ships in Port Dollar that would go out and find diamonds in the sea. And I believe, Louis, this led to an organization that you created called Wealth for You. Tell us a little bit about the organization and what happened to it. Well, as I said just before the break, Chad, is that I started off just uh, investigating the situation of diamonds. I had this dream in the back of my mind and I heard this voice sort of in in in, uh, in my head, uh, Padre Fontes, go back to the fountains of your father. And there I found about, you know, at the time there was about uh, 15 boats, only about 14 meters in length with uh, all the equipment on it, but everybody working for the state, uh, for Elixcore. And obviously, you know, it's, it's very topical at the moment, all the corruption that took place in Elixcore. But going there, there was a whole history of since 1927, people uh, founded uh, diamonds in uh, in Port Nolith. But immediately, as has happened in Kimberley, the big boys took the small boys out very quickly, like it was with Rhodes, Barney Bonato, and all these people from the start. So the same happened in Port Nolith. But what I then thought, okay, right. You know, they've got these capital challenges. They don't have the money before they get to the jackpot. Uh, they're out of uh, capital and they're not well disciplined. So try and discipline this. Put this all together. And I got, I hitchhiked down to Cape Town, booked into a hotel and started talking to people that's got a bit of money and telling them that I want to buy boats. And initially it was just a picture on a paper and a dream in my head. But very, very soon people started buying in, the small people. And I had the slogan developed that the ordinary people should share in the mineral wealth of South Africa. You know, Chad, nobody in this country should be poor. Nobody in this country, and I repeat that, should be poor if we utilize the mineral wealth for the people. But what is happening is exactly as wealth is, and I'm not saying that the 80-20 principle won't apply. I'm not saying that there would not be poor people. Even the Bible and the Torah tells us that poor people will exist forever and a day. But there's the bulk of people on the, in, in the Makwaland, the original people, didn't have a share in the mineral wealth. And I wanted to play a role regarding that. So what I then did is I started talking to people, and before I knew it, they were giving me $5 million, $10 million. Within four months or eight months, I had $18 million, uh, and I started buying boats. The minute I did that, I had calls from Alex Corps saying to me, now what's happening now? So it would be okay for them if you have one boat. But if you own a fleet of ships, then sh- then they would look seriously at you and th- start throwing things like the Bank Act and uh, sorry for the Afrikaans in between uh, harmful business practices and whatever laws has been developed on behalf of the money and on behalf of the power that sits behind them, be it the bank or be uh, large mining houses that we that we know the names of. So. Well, for you took off, and then things didn't go very well. And it's it's like you found your niche. You want to stay in diamonds, but things aren't working out too well. How did you handle the fallout of wealth for you? And do you still have issues to this day pertaining 
to the fact that wealth for you wasn't the success that you initially thought it would be? Uh, Chad, the interesting thing is there was nothing wrong with Wealthy. As a matter of fact, we were growing. We eventually had uh, about 64 divers. We had 11 ships. We had 20, uh, 20 or so Volpomp or shoreline operations. We were doing very well, and we were, were LXCore's largest producer. We did some months 40, 60, 70% of their production. But then came the call of Mdaka, the CEO at the time, that said to me, Louis, listen, how many companies do you have? And the minute they found out that I had 23 companies operating under an umbrella, that is when they terminated my contracts. Now, if this isn't clear to the public and everybody out there that this is manipulated and that at the time I warned Elixcore, I was sitting in fact in front of their CEO as well as their management and I said to them, this is not the end of it. Your corruption will stop because at the, at the time they called him Shabir Sheikh, uh, General Malloy that was the chairman of Cell C and his right-hand man, General Galela, and they told me that I must leave the company, I must resign, and they will take over management. So the, the fact of the matter is, as has been the case since 1888, the manipulation by the big players in the market has never, ever stopped. Now we see the investigation in Elixcore, and we find out, okay, yes, right, the Guptas got their hand in there like with the rest of the economy. But this is the case wherever you go. The state machinery is so powerful to stop the individual and the people of South Africa to grow and to get the original people uh, to work the diamonds that's on their ground and in their seashore. You you see the fight. I mean, uh, President Ramaphosa only in 2019 signed into into law the Khoi Sun uh, new legislation. That is like 25 years after democracy, and the original people still in 2019 were not part of a new South Africa. Isn't that ridiculous? And this is what I'm fighting. But obviously, if you fight the money, and if you fight the establishment, you will be a crook. But I'm 57 years old, and I've got a clean criminal record. How do you actually work that out? So for no. those listeners that have been sending us uh, messages, thank you so much. You can SMS us, SMS us on 34519. You can tweet us at HiFM. Um, there's other ways you can get through to us. We'll send you that. And we're going to be reading out those questions just after 22. So thank you so much for those that have been sending messages. Louis, what did you think when you heard about the fact that Alexcor, De Beers, the Guptas were all raised some two and a half weeks ago at the State Capture Commission? Did it come as a surprise to you that the the whole diamond trade was so embedded with State Capture along with the arms deal along with Eskom, along with Transnet? No, as, no not as, as a matter of fact, not. Uh, in 2006, I already wrote on Carte Blanche's page, and you can actually see it if you Google it, that that was the case. And I wrote a whole thing, and I didn't even get a call back. I'm not fighting with Graham or with, uh, with Derek or anybody at, uh, at Carte Blanche, but one of the things I, I would say is that it's very dangerous if you start manipulating the news. And that's why I appreciate your channel so much, because the rest of the Afrikaans media reports specifically and Media 24 are all mafia. It's an absolute clan of mafia together. They will censor the news. They will stop you. They will utilize the police. They will use whatever to throw at you once you start talking the truth. 
So, and that's why I, I believe a new media house is very necessary, like yourself, a movement that you are, are utilizing to get people to speak openly. I mean, we are a democracy. So, no, I've not been surprised at all. The question I need to ask, why only now, 14 years later, 15 years later, are we looking at what Louis Liebenberg, a stupid small boy from Port Nolith, has been saying all along? So, Louis, let's talk about what you're currently doing. There's a lot of talk about, and this is international, this is not just confined to South Africa, about what's referred to as First Nations people. And we're seeing organizations that are multinational with the support of the government of the day plundering resources. We see it in South Africa, whether it's platinum mining, gold mining, whether it is coltan in Congo, whether it is um, cobalt in Lumumbashi, and of course in South Africa we see it with diamonds. What is happening to the people on the ground in respect of those indigenous people in the Macquarland, in the Richtersveld, near Port Dollith, that have been disenfranchised all these years? Well, let's start with the following almost a question is why did the beers, why did they not disclose uh, to the Conservation South Africa groups in 2015, all the information of what they have mined. We all know that the beers and other big mining houses disappear from an area, which means they only go for the rich diamonds, the big diamonds, and then they leave an area. They went for Namakwaland, for example, Transex. Whilst I just recently bought the permit of Buffalo's Bank, where we we can still get 17 carats per 100 ton. Now, that's massive if you look at it uh, from from any other area in terms of uh, return on investment. But, okay, let's, uh, let's continue. Why would uh, it uh, take people like me and the Namakwalan people to utilize the pie legislation to get information whilst the beers and all these big mining houses can just give it to us? And I'll tell you the reason. The reason is what these people do, they go and plunder an area, let's say for 20, 30, 50 years, depending on the life of mine. Once they leave, they dump all the area rehabilitation uh, expenses and the uh, the um, accountability for that on the smaller miner and on the and the local people have to suffer the brunt do you know that in Amakwaland, there's a stretch of only 15 kilometer of coastline that does not belong to some other mining house and the minute that the beer has worked an area they give it oh so nicely to to the uh, the parks board or some other wonderful organization. Whilst the local people, the Kwe, the Sun, the Namakwa, the Greekwa people cannot mine the area. In the meantime, they die of hunger, but they will just ignore that and say that they've done a great job. I look, they're looking after the antelope. They're looking after fauna and flora. This is the sickness. And what Louis Liebenberg has done with a bit of a history, he's actually put this across and he tells people about this and he has become the enemy of the state because of this very issue. The enemy of the banks, the enemy of, of organized crime, which is the conspiracy between corrupt governments and big mining houses. Louis, your current business model, how does it work and why are detractors saying that it is a Ponzi scheme? 
Yeah, look, I mean, if we look at the definition of a Ponzi, uh, there's obviously a difference between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme. But if you look at the definition, it guarantees returns. That's one of the things. It also gives you con- consistently high performances, maybe. Now, I buy a diamond, a one character at 3,000 rand. All right. Now you can go to Browns. What do you, what do you pay for it? 50,000 rand. All I'm doing is I'm saying the big mining houses didn't become this rich and wealthy and famous and they don't buy racehorses a hundred at a time for nothing. I sat, and as I said at Code Blanche, I sat next to Mrs. Oppenheimer and she asked me, now my young boy, what are you doing for a living? And I said, do diamonds. She said, my husband also had something to do with that. The euphemism of the rich and the famous. Whilst other people are dying, this is the problem. Now, let's get back to the pyramid scheme. If I offer a diamond and I say to somebody, I bought this diamond as 3,000. We can sell it for 6,000 rand. It's 100% profit. It's not unrealistic, is it? Because at Browns, they're selling it at 50,000 rand. Now, I remember an interview with Ernest Blom. He, my father used to bring diamonds all the time from Port Nullith, And I sell to his son, Aaron, as well. Now, when you ask those people, they will claim that they only make 3% on a diamond. Now, how do you do it? If you buy it for 3,000, I will understand that if you sell it for 3,010 or 20 rand, that you are making sense. But we're buying it at 3,000 and sometimes selling it for 9 or 12,000 rand. And that is the truth. The truth must be told. It has been a big lie. And therefore, all the wealth is now exported at a very low price to England and to the rest of the world, and then the value is added on the other side, and then we buy it back at ridiculous prices. And that's exactly why I would, on the one hand, say thank you to the government for saying at least 15% must be locally beneficiary. What's the right word now? Added value on a local basis. Coming back to a Ponzi scheme, what is a Ponzi scheme? A Ponzi scheme says to other people, you know, put in money, get other people to bring in money. I don't because of the value that I add to that specific stone that I offer. I say this stone of 3,000 rand, I can sell for 6,000. We make 100%. I share the profit with you. You take 50, I take 50. Now, obviously, if I can only make 10%, I will give them 5% and they will take 5. The story about you take other people's money, take Paul's money to uh, Rob Paul to pay Peter is an absolute lie that is spread by people that hasn't done their business. I would like to in- people to come and investigate what I do, not speculate, not speculate in the media, come and investigate. And I've invited the Afrikaans media. I've invited uh, Radio Sondergrense that is very much borders. They've got borders all along. Um, they stop people from talking the truth and they edit and, and, and therefore, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. The fact of the matter is, the, the problem is here that the poor must stay poor and the rich will become richer. And what I'm saying is those diamonds, if we want real democracy in this country, we need to put the mineral wealth in the hands of ordinary people and then the poverty will stop. We will eradicate poverty overnight if we go this route. Louis, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to some of the questions from the listeners, and we're going to talk about the legitimacy of your current operation. We'll be back straight after this. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. 
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to the Confidential Brief. We're live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM, and the podcast for the show will be uploaded within the next 24 hours. And remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available at highfm.com. Chatting to Louis Liebenberg today, he's been called everything under the sun from Scalum to Schema to Fenierke. Um, and uh, some people in the communities have even regarded him as a savior, a community I would definitely be chatting to within the next couple of weeks. But I want to understand the legitimacy of the operation. I understand that in South Africa, people have been very nervous of the diamond trade because we're one of the few countries in the world where IDB, illicit diamond buying, is a major offense. And that was to obviously protect the interests of the mines and the government who are making sufficient monies on this. So before we go to the questions that have come through from our listeners, Louis, I want to ask, from a, a, a compliance perspective and from a business perspective, are you running a legal operation? Yes, absolutely, Chad. Uh, I'm working. I've got a number of legal um, traders operating, legal licensed traders, and we also have permits in mines. So it's absolutely legal. Where this controversy comes from is that I'm also supporting the Nama people with their fight against the system. And if I say the system, it is so big, I can't actually put it under words. It is mining houses and government uh, in an absolute corrupt collaboration, even though we're rich and famous and wealthy in this country. But let's get to what is legal. We, are, we, offer, we offer a diamond or a parcel, at, and we say we believe that we can make this amount of profit. And we share the profit with people. There's nothing whatsoever illegal with that. Apart from that, we don't pool resources. We say this diamond and your money goes towards this specific diamond. There's absolutely nothing illegal about it. And the permits are in place and the licenses are in place. Where, where the story comes from is because there's 5,000 Illegal diamond miners, according to government. Now, Louis Liebenberg says the only illegal diamond operations in South Africa is the beer and the big mining houses. They are working illegally on the ground of other people. Since 1888, they stole the ground of the local people. From the Beers brothers, right up to today, they are working illegally. They should be locked up. They should be put away and the keys thrown away forever. Local people should be able to work like in the DRC in their own background and dig up their own diamonds and make a living. Why should 95% of Kubu, Sundrift, Fontaine, Alexander Bay and so on, all those towns on the Orange River be unemployed? Why should they use drugs to just calm the pain? Why should they drink every day until they lie in front of the shops and say, Mr. Liebenberg, will you please give me two rand? Why should that happen? The reason why it's happening is because the bears have been sitting on permits that they legally, <laughs> in inverted brackets, acquired 
that they stole from people and they are still working on the ground. And yet, 20 years later, after they abandoned Clainseer and the areas around Clainseer and Amakulan, they still do not work the permanent, but do not want to give it to the local people. Now, I have 5,000 artisanal miners there, like I've got in Kimberley working together with 20,000, 2,000 people that stay on the ground where Ekapa and those people gave them ground. Yes, I've got 12 leaders, and I support those people in their fight to get legal permits. The government, I'm sorry, the government in the form of... uh, Deputy, Pres- uh, Deputy uh, Minister Olifant came to the people while I was there, and that's where Carte Blanche took their footage when I addressed about 5,000 people, saying to them that we must not give the police reason to lock us up, take our stuff, take the diamond difference gravel. We must apply for the permits. Yet, this is now three years later, and all these people applied for the permits, and the government is still feeding the big mining houses. They're still getting fat around the fires with them. They are still <laughs> sitting in restaurants and talking about a Louis? outside Springbok. Yes, now, sorry, now an I'm, emotional now, talk. Sorry, Chad. Now I'm yes. hearing the son of the preacher, man. And uh, yes, you are becoming emotive, and it's important. People must understand what passion is. But we promised the listeners an opportunity to ask questions. So let's try answer these questions as quickly as possible. And some of these questions are very interesting. Um, we have three questions from one listener. He says, Louis, why is your group exclusive for white people? There are no other races. Um, his okay. second question, how can you sell same or similar parcels over and over with a different carrot and price? And three, can an independent valuator inspect and evaluate the diamonds and parcels on hand? So those are three questions from one person. The first question, do you work exclusively for the white community? Um, Chad, um, if, if you look at the broader picture of what Louis does, I work for Africana Nama Corporation. That's what I work for. Now, you can say I'm excluding certain people. Then I can say the blacks also exclude other people. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not fighting for a race. I'm fi- fighting for the Africana Nava, Nama Corporation. We've got the same background. My great grandfather on my father's side came in and he married Kratua's daughter, Peter Nella. Okay. And I will send all this to you to prove that what I'm saying is true. So yes, I'm part German and I'm part Kwe. And that maybe explains a lot of my actions. Now, to explain this to that person, I I know where those questions come from. First of all, I take every diamond, we take a picture of the specific diamond. It is absolutely untrue that one diamond is sold and sold and sold. Sometimes we use illustrations. Chad, any company has got the right to private information. We are not a public company. We are not a public company. There's trade secrets, and these people must respect our trade secrets or we are not in business. Totally understood. Last question, do you have an independent person who can assist in the evaluation of the diamonds? We do it all the time. Let me tell you something. A person that's worked for the Harry Oppenheimer Training Center, uh, he's been 53 years in the diamond industry, and he's 23 years as the head trainer of the Harry Oppenheimer Training Center, works for me now. So I've got people all over that know the business, exactly the business. 
What you can't expect of me and what people can't expect of me is to tell them exactly how I go about business because this is not a public company. And if you look at my agreement as such as well, there's no such right. I actually tell people that they will lose their money, that they cannot put in more than 20% of their capital, available capital, into my company. It is high risk. You will lose your money. That's basically what I'm telling them, but maybe not. Maybe not. Louis, very interesting question. Let's keep it short. Benjamin DeVette writes, hi, Chad. Apparently, there's a quiet little man with an attache case who visits the diamond mines. After his visits, the mine's profit soars. Is this true? Well, what I can tell you is that a lot of the listings in South Africa has been bullshit. Uh, It's been salted. Um, Let's just take uh, Petra Mining must come and explain to me where they got the money from to buy the De Beers mines, for example. And then suddenly... They discover this wonderful diamond that everybody through a hundred years missed. Yes, there's a lot of bullshit. It comes from the money. It comes from the big boys, not from small people like me. Right. Another person says, my remark to the people who's against the business is to get out and leave us alone so we can conduct the business with Louis. Another person says, there is an issue with parcels being paid out. We ask where is the parcels, and then we get a story to say that the payout um, will take place, and it can be two months till payout takes place. Okay, let me, give you, let, me, let me give you some statistics. We've got 12,000 people on Facebook. We've got 7,521 uh, 7, people investing. We've got on our WhatsApps 8,590. I've paid out 638,979,000 up to now. And you will notice something. We've got something called COVID. And therefore, they can go and check those people. They can go and check whether we had tenders since October. And go and check whether if you sell large parcels and you go one dealer to another, there's 800 of them alone in Johannesburg, there's a 1,000% difference in terms of what they offer you. So the best method is obviously to put your large parcels on tender. If you don't sell it via tender, you don't know whether you're going to get the right price on the profit. So we've got out of the 650-odd parcels or 630-odd parcels, we've got about uh, 30 or 40 parcels that we haven't sold yet. Now, uh, that I'm a very high-level communicator. I communicate that every day. But we've got enemies, and we didn't talk about them in this specific slot. But you, it's small people, a guy that invests like Amelia Riemann, putting in 2,000 rand, getting out 4,700 rand, and then they start pages on Facebook. Now, Louis is not a cowboy. I cannot operate like that. And if they want me to operate like that, they force me into a realm of underworld, and I'm not interested. I'm doing business for the people of Namakwaland and the Afrikaners. That's what I'm doing. Louis, I want to thank you today. I think we could have gone on for quite some time. And what yes. I've been planning is actually a trip to the Richtersfeld, from the Richtersfeld down to the Macquarland, and to be able to experience myself on the ground what's happening. We were involved in an investigation a few years ago with the Batlong Bashole people in Northwest that also had diamond rights, and these rights were taken from them. And it seems like people in South Africa need answers because our country's economic backbone is built on two things, our mineral rights and entrepreneurs, and we need to ensure that things are done properly, and we need to ensure that the trickle-down effect works, 
because the disparity between the haves and the have-nots is at an all-time high, and we each need to do something about that. And we need to chat to people such as yourselves. We need to give you the right of reply, but in the same token, we need to speak to the people on the ground and find out what their concerns are and what's happening, because it seems government is leaving a lot of people in the lurch. Louis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chad. Much appreciated, brother. Louis, I'll be calling you once we've uh, met with those people in the Macquillan and the Richtersfeld, because I think it's going to make for a, a much more interesting conversation. And I see there's a lot of requests for information on our on our board today, so I'll be posting to the Confidential Brief radio show a little bit later today. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. They are there for us in the very worst of times. They step in to assist us when life has stopped. They are the cemetery workers, the men and women of the Hevra Kedisha Jewish Helping Hand and Burial Society. Over the last year, their service was more essential than ever. They are the unsung heroes, and we want to change that. Zayin Adar is the only day on which the community traditionally acknowledges and appreciates the service of our cemetery workers. This year, you can help honor these heroes by sending them happiness in a box, Shabbat meals and gifts for Shabbat 19 February, the Shabbat of Zayin Adar. Honor our heroes by sponsoring a box or part of a box. For more details, go to chayathem.com. Honor our heroes is a Chayathem community initiative. Knowing your COVID status doesn't need to be costly or take forever. At Diskem Pharmacies, you can reduce the cost and anxiety of waiting for results with their rapid COVID tests. Book an antigen test, which can determine if a specific virus is presently in your body, or an antibody test, which in most cases can determine whether you've had a virus or not in the recent past. Book an appointment at a Diskem store near you on 86 111 The number again, 86 111 a winning mind is a healthy body. I'm going to play out with a song that I mentioned a little bit earlier when I was chatting to Louis. It's an amazing song. And he just reminded me of it when he was speaking so passionately about the subject of diamonds, something that I definitely want to find out more about and to find out how the people of the Richtersfeld and Macroland is. This is Chad Thomas. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.